Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good. Well, tonight um, our topic is going to be predictably the Holy Spirit, as we've talked the last three weeks on who is God, God the Father, God the Son. Well, naturally, we should probably talk about the Holy Spirit. And so let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so talking about the Holy Spirit, it's something that we as the church really kind of struggle with. We talk a lot about God the Father. We know God the Son and Jesus Christ. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're kind of flummoxed. We really don't know where to start. And a lot of that comes from you can't really talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about the Father or without talking about the Son. In fact, if I were to say to you, the Holy Spirit, what is the first incident that comes to mind for, for many of us? We talk about the Holy Spirit interjecting into human history. Tongues of fire, Pentecost. That's normally the first thing that kind of pops in our head. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, just like when we talk about Jesus Christ, from the beginning, the Holy Spirit was present. And the Holy Spirit was present in many different forms. In fact, you can't perfectly comprehend who God is except through the Spirit of God. We hear about the Spirit of God being made flesh through the person of Jesus. And so we're like, okay, so we're talking about the Spirit or are we talking about the Son? Well, again, it's, it's a both and and not an either or. Now, God's Spirit, who reveals God, makes known to us Christ, his word, his living utterance, but the Spirit does not speak of himself. The Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets, makes us hear the Father's word, but we do not hear of the Spirit himself. The Spirit never actually speaks to us of himself, always points us to God the Son or to God the Father. That is his role. Remember when we talked about who God is that first week, and we talked about how St. Augustine talked about the love of the Father and the Son and that bond of love that they shared being the Holy Spirit? And that when we talk about marriage, that it's kind of the same way that the bond of love shared between the husband and the wife is the potential of a child, that gift of that love relationship. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit, that you cannot have one without the others. So you cannot have the Father without the Son. You cannot have the Son without the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Holy Spirit without both the Father and the Son. And so when we hear of the Spirit, he's always trying to tell us of the Father or always trying to show us the Son. And so when we talk about that day of Pentecost, and what, how, how long after Easter was Pentecost? 50 days, hence the word penta. So seven weeks, 50 days after um, Easter, the Holy Spirit descends and at Christ's Passover is finally fulfilled. Christ's Passover, his passion, death, and resurrection that we talk about as that mystery of his life 
is finally completed when those tongues as of fire descend on the apostles in the upper room. And what was the promise that Christ made before he ascended to heaven? He said, I will not abandon with you, right? He said, I will leave with you who? My Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, as advocate and guide, you will never be alone until the end of the age. Now, some people try and read into that. Well, what is the end of the age? Is the end of the age when the apostles died? Is the end of the age when the first century ended? Is the end of the age when the book of Revelation comes to fruition? What does it mean when we say the end of the age? Well, as far as I'm concerned, that all happened before me, so the age is still going on. And that's kind of how the church sees it. The end of the age is the end of humanity. Well, we are still kicking, so the Lord is still here. The Lord is still present amongst us through the person of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, and guide. So on that day, and today's going to be a little bit different class-wise than I've had the last few weeks, because when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's so much more written than there is up here, because I, like everyone else, talk a lot about the Father, talk a lot about the Son, but I'm still engaging myself on my personal journey in trying to learn more about the Spirit. So I will have more quotes for us today than I've had in the past. So in the Catechism, really looking at paragraphs 105 to 114, or paragraphs 687 to 747 are really what I'm focusing on um, in today's class. So in Catechism, uh, paragraph 732, on that day, the Holy Trinity is fully revealed. Since that day, the kingdom announced by Christ has been open to those who believe in him. In the humility of the flesh and in faith, they already shared in the communion of the Holy Trinity. By his coming, which never ceases, the Holy Spirit causes the world to enter into the last days, the time of the church, the kingdom already inherited, though not yet consummated. So we hear about that is when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles as tongues of fire, that that new kingdom that Christ continued to talk about when he talked about the kingdom come, or when we talked about that perfect prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that kingdom that is coming is the kingdom of God on earth, which we are participating in still today. Following along so far? And I'll probably stop more for questions. So if you guys have questions, please feel free to be like, hey, Father, got questions, because I want to hear questions, not just what I think of things. So when we talk about the church, um, a communion living in the faith of the apostles, which she transmits, it's the place where we know the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit as inspiring the scriptures. We know the, the Holy Spirit in the tradition of the church to which the church fathers are always witnessing to and developing through history. We see the Holy Spirit present in the church's magisterium. What's the magisterium? We hear that word a lot, either taken positively or negatively in media. What is, when we say the word, the magisterium of the church, what does that mean? the teaching office, the teaching authority of the church. What's interesting is that in literature, sometimes instead of talking about the Catholic faith, they will use terms that are insider language in our faith to talk about the faith without talking about the faith to either lift it up or to tear it down. In fact, there was a um, book series that came out ooh, about 10, 15 years ago where the magisterium were the bad guys. It was interesting because it was a children's novel that turned into a movie. The movie's name's not coming to me right now. Golden Compass, that's what it was. 
the golden compass. And the golden compass, the magisterium, were the people that were trying to rip the souls away from the individuals so that the magisterium could have control. It was a book that came out probably early 2000s, came out, Nicole Kidman played um, kind of the, the leading role of the bad guys, the magisterium in that. And so they took one of the terms that really only in the Catholic faith is that word used to literally try and say the church is just trying to take your soul away and not give you any decisions. And so when we talk about the magisterium of the church, we talk about the teaching authority of the church. It's not this evil empire. It's not this evil entity that is trying to take your free will away. In fact, what it's trying to do is do the exact opposite and say, God loves you. Here is how this is shown to us. Here is how we are called to live it out. That when we look at scripture, when we look at tradition, when we look at the teaching authority of the church, that it's not just one person that comes and says, I'm in charge and I know better than you. Why? Because we're human. We're flawed. We make mistakes. We come from different walks of life. So when we look at the history of the Catholic faith, people came together as the magisterium, as the teaching authority of the church, through councils through groups of people coming together to process through what it is we teach, what it is we believe, why we teach it, why we believe it, and how do we practice it. So when we look at things and we hear these things like the Council of Nicaea. Why was the Council of Nicaea important? Because it gives us the first quarter of the catechism. It gives us, actually, the Apostles' Creed is the first quarter of the catechism, but it gives us the Nicene Creed, which should sound familiar because that's what we profess every Sunday when we come to Mass. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We profess that, and that tradition that we have didn't just come out of nowhere. It came from people prayerfully discerning through the Holy Spirit, through that advocate and guide, what is true, what is not. And those different councils that we have throughout tradition and there were a lot of them, I can't even name them all, but if you look actually in the back of the catechism, there's actually a section, I had the class last night, I think we got to go to, where I got to look more into the catechism, into the actual um, indexes in the back. It's like, oh, I didn't realize these are here. But in the back, in the index of the catechism, it gives you all of the different councils, the synods, the pontifical documents that are referenced, um, the, the different saints that are referenced, where we get the profession of faith, the ecumenical councils that are referenced, gives you the dates on here, gives you the paragraphs where in the catechism it's going back and referencing these different councils, starting back with the profession of faith and then going to the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century in 325. So for the last 1700 years, the church has had basically the same beliefs. And so what's interesting is many times when we talk with our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters, they talk about the early Christians. You've heard that phrase before. Well, the early Christians taught this and this and this. I hate to tell you, the early Christians were Catholic. Because there wasn't any other Christian denomination at that time. It was Christianity. It was Catholicity, the universal church. And so when we talk about these councils, when we have that profession of faith, when we have this tradition that we go to as Catholics, we go to all of these councils to say, this is what we agreed upon as bishops, as priests, as deacons, as the teaching authority of the church, inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand, to lead us, 
and guide us as the Spirit is called to lead us and guide us through the promise that Christ made us. That it's not just some people trying to trick us, as we talked about last week when we talked about mere Christianity and looking at the person of Jesus, who is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Well, if we're still not convinced that he's the Lord and we still see Jesus as the liar or the lunatic, we can make those claims. And that's what Satan tries to well up within us. We'll get into some of that specifically next week when we talk about the fall of man. But what happens is that many times we allow ourselves to find the easiest answer, to find the convenient answer. Because if it's convenient and it's easy, it doesn't take a lot of work. If it's convenient and it's easy, it doesn't mean that we have to change. And change, though it has six letters in it, to our society is a four-letter word. It's something you don't talk about. It's something you don't do. How dare you ask me to change? Well, from the beginning of time, God has called us to change. Not to change to society, but to change against sin. To turn from sin, to turn to love. And he gives us many examples of this in our life, many examples of this in history, and and he shows us, even from the beginning, that this isn't just a random coincidence. We see when God created the heavens and the earth, even in the beginning, that God created everything good. Why is that important? Because we are created by God. That in our essence, everything God creates is good. The purpose of everything is to embrace its goodness. And the Holy Spirit can give us some guidance in that. We talk about spiritual direction where you go to a priest or a deacon or someone that has a degree in spiritual direction, basically what spiritual direction is, is counseling based on the Holy Spirit. How do we see engaging in our lives the Spirit present? How do we listen? How do we adapt? How do we change? How are we molded? That's basically what spiritual direction is. How do I live my life? What is my motivation? Is my motivation I want to be successful in life? Is my motivation, and this has been my motivation at times in my life, I want to make sure that people show up at my funeral? Is my motivation I want to make sure that I never have to worry about anything financially? Is my motivation making sure that my kids grow up, making sure that I have kids? What is our prime motivation? And where we find that prime motivation is where we find how we respond ultimately to God's love, how we respond ultimately to those gentle coaxings of the Holy Spirit. And and that's an important question to ask ourselves. What is our prime motivator? Is it making sure that I keep my job? Is it making sure that I pay the rent? Is it making sure that the bills are all paid and we have some money in the bank afterwards? Well, what does Christ tell us? we gain the whole world but lose our souls, what have we truly gained? We see through many of the lives of the martyrs and the saints in history that those who had and those who had not, what really differentiated them wasn't whether they were wealthy or not. It was whether they lived out their faith or not. And how do we best live out our faith? How do we best embrace our faith? It shows based on what our priorities are. In fact, there are many different saints 
that grew up very cushy lives, that grew up as royalty, denied that, turned away from that, and became hermits. Now, if I grew up with a billion dollars to my name, I'm not going to lie, it'd be kind of hard to say, no, I don't need that. I'm going to go live in the woods. In fact, we see that sometimes as a meme on Facebook. How many of you guys would, if you, if you were given a million dollars, live in the woods for a month? I'd do it for free to get away from craziness sometimes. Give me a million dollars, that's just an extra bonus. But most of us would say, yeah, I'll turn away from whatever's going on. Give me that million dollars. But it's harder to do it the other way around. How many of us would deny what we have, what we hold to our core, and say, nothing matters in my life except for God? Most of us would be crickets. We'd be like, yeah, intellectually, I know what you're asking me. Um, I may be able to say that, but it's really hard to put that into practice. It's hard for us to sacrifice It's hard for us to give. Why? Because we really many times don't recognize or don't witness to our reception. In the sense of we think that, and our society even teaches that, everything that you want in your life, if you have enough motivation, you can achieve it. You don't need anybody else. You can do it by yourself. Just put your boots on and tighten those bootstraps and get to work. You could do anything. We hear that, right? But not everybody has the same gifts. Not everybody has the same talents. And when we strive for something that is above what we're able to do, that many times, ironically, is where we take those extra steps back instead of those extra steps forward. That's when we begin to look around and not recognize how we're blessed but see how we have not been blessed. I have not been blessed with their gifts. I have not been blessed with their talents. I have not been blessed with their skills. Now, what did I not say in that? I didn't say that I wasn't blessed. What I said was, I wasn't blessed how they were. But the way that we tell ourselves or convince ourselves many times about that is, if I haven't been blessed how I want to be blessed, then I haven't been blessed. But the reality is, each and every one of us have been blessed as you, as me. I have a specific set of talents, skills, and a package that in the history of creation, God never has and God never will again duplicate. So have you. And that's important for us to not just hear, but to really grasp what that means. That means in the history of history, you are unique. That's a good thing. Because that's where you find your blessing. We find our blessings in our uniqueness. The world, though, says what? It says either anything you can do, I can do better, that whole song, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. We get into that mentality, or we say that we're all the same. In fact, I wasn't going to bring this up tonight, but I may as well because I'm on that path. There's a book that I read in third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade at three different schools in three different places. 
that really gets to the heart of this, and that's a third, fourth, and fifth grader. It's a tragedy that I learned this book. But it was part of the national curriculum, national thing that everybody read in the mid to late 90s. Everybody read in the early 2000s, and we didn't think anything different about it because we were 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and didn't see the consequences of reading it. I looked back fondly on this book when they made a movie about it in the last decade and said, man, I really loved that book growing up. This movie's going to be amazing. You ever hear of the book The Giver? Most of us, my age, plus or minus five or ten years, has read it, which is some of us in here. But it's a book that was a post-apocalyptic book that took any difference out. People didn't see color. People didn't see difference. There was no uniqueness. In fact, uniqueness was seen as bad. Difference was bad. If you did not um, become the same, if you did not enculturate, you were dismissed from the community, whether you be an infant or you outlive your use, you would be released, euthanized, murdered. That they would have this release ceremony for those that were past their working age. That I've done my labor and now I can be released. They take them into a back room, pump them full of drugs and murder them. Again, talk to our third, fourth, and fifth graders 20 years ago. And then for this child that couldn't behave in society, he was scheduled for release. Because if you can't behave by the age of one, you won't be able to be fixed. So they release you. They murder you. And we look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's a horrible society. We would never do those things, right? Whew, have you heard of euthanasia? Have you heard of the not partial birth, but full birth abortion bill that just passed two years ago in New York? The child can be born, and the mother can make the decision after the birth to terminate the pregnancy. What? How do we not see that we are living out what society gives us as right? That we aren't listening to the voice of God. That we take God out of the schools. One nation under God. In God we trust is on our money. But when was the last time we trusted in God? When was the last time we used our faith to dictate our decisions? Many times we fall into the trap of modernity. We become cafeteria Catholics. You guys have heard that term before. I think I've used it here before. What does it mean to be a cafeteria Catholic? Well, I want my meat and my potatoes. I don't want the broccoli. No, I do. But I don't want the broccoli. I don't want the asparagus. I want the junk food. I want parts of this, but I don't want everything because some of these teachings are really hard. Did you listen to the Gospel of John last month in John chapter 6 where Jesus opened up the teaching on the Eucharist? My body, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life within you. 
Did you see what happened right after then? Some of his disciples found this teaching too hard and went back to their former ways of life. We're the same way, just 2,000 years later. Many times, we don't embrace our faith because it is hard. It is hard to be a person of faith because we see sin in the world. We see sin in our families. We see sin in our own lives, and we really fall into the trap of saying, well, if this is what it means to be perfect and I can't do it, what's the point of even trying? Well, the point, my brothers and sisters, again, and I realize that I mention this a lot of times, but that point around, is right around us with the station of the cross. That Christ bore the weight of our cross, though he was innocent. He fell under the weight of the burden and got back up. Fell, got back up. Fell, got back up. I was reminded this morning at the gospel that we, when we had a funeral for Mark Pickett in the gospel, that it's never too late. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, you've got the good thief and the other thief, which our terminology sometimes is faulty in that. But in the good thief, he recognizes his own sinfulness. And he recognizes, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the world. I have been justly condemned. And what does Jesus say to him? Amen, amen, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. When we recognize our sinfulness and don't allow it to dictate our actions, we are giving into that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are taking its guidance and allowing it to affect change in our lives. Now, it's not going to happen like that. Why? Because we didn't get to where we are like that, for most of us at least. We didn't just make a, I'm going to change positive, negatively, or indifferently. No, we've gotten to where we are over time. There was an analogy that I heard on Catholic Radio a few years ago when it was talking about vice and being entrenched in sin. And if you think of a box, about yay big, of sand, you pour water into the sand, what happens? It forms a crevice, right? And the longer you pour water in that same spot, the crevice gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Now try and fill that crevice in without adding anything to it. It's never going to come back perfect, right? It's always going to be a little wonky. It's always going to kind of have that scar of allowing that crevice to be formed. That's what vice does in our lives when we try and replace it with virtue. First of all, it took forever for that vice to be there, which is a habitual bad thing that we do. Habitual sin is a vice. And how do we con contradict vices? By inserting virtue, but virtue is a learned virtue. Virtue is a learned good thing that we do to counteract sin. But it takes time, it takes preparation, it takes failure, it takes practice. Again, we aren't perfecting Catholics. We are practicing Catholics and practicing Christians. How do we practice our faith? It means sometimes we're not going to get it right. But when we don't get it right, we have a decision. We can fight or we can flee. Darwin showed us that, that fight or flight method. Well, how do we fight for our faith? We continue to learn, we continue to grow, we continue to open up these texts and see what it is our church actually teaches versus the easier way, what does someone tell me that the church teaches? I can't tell you how frustrating it is sometimes as a priest, and this is just a personal aside, 
how frustrating it is to have to contradict so much false Catholicism, so much false Christianity, in the sense of, oh, well, the Catholic Church teaches this. No, we don't. Or the Catholic Church believes this. Since when? Oh, well, you Catholics do this and this and that. We do? I didn't know that. Because they don't look at what we actually teach. They look at us as those models of faith. And some of us aren't really good models. And I I put myself in that category sometimes too. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm a bad model of faith. That's why I continually go to confession every week. Yes, for my own good, but also for the good of ministry. So that I don't rely on myself, but I rely on Christ. So I rely on the Holy Spirit. So I can get back to why I do what I do, not just what I do. So the Holy Spirit inspires the scriptures. The Holy Spirit continues to work and develop through tradition throughout the last 2,100 years in the Christian tradition, but before that, in the Jewish tradition. The Holy Spirit helps to form the teaching authority of the church and the magisterium. In the sacramental liturgy, through its words and symbols, the Holy Spirit pulls us into communion with Christ. That through the prayer of the Epiclesis, when Father places his hands over what is bread and wine, through the prayer of transubstantiation... The bread and wine no longer remains, but it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Yes, the accidents of bread and wine are present. What we visibly see, what we visibly taste, are bread and wine. But what is present is no longer bread and wine. It becomes truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. That's why for me, For so many times, when I talk about the Eucharist, I talk about the host, or I talk about the cup. I don't talk about the bread or the wine. Or, are you a bread bearer or or a wine bearer? Well, if you're either of those, you're not a Eucharistic minister because that's not what's present. That in our society, there are so many small, snide remarks that are made in that way, intentionally or non-intentionally, by Catholics or people that grew up Catholic. One of the biggest comedians in the early 2000s, grew up Catholic. And he talks about this in one of his comedy things. But then he comes and says, yeah, I went to church growing up. I was Catholic. I went every week to get my Christ checks. It's like, what? Like checks, the, the, the breakfast food? Yeah, just, just put, put them in a bowl and pour some wine over it. And yeah, I mean, Jesus had to be the drunkest person ever, right? And it's like, do you realize how sacrilegious you're being? Whether he does or not, We feed into that. And as a Catholic who is not practicing his faith, but proclaiming what he believes, people hear that. And then we degrade, and it goes out to our kids. And he was a very big actor for a long time, a very very big comedian for a long time, on a lot of different movies and comedies, and even came to the university that was at at that time. And it's like, man... This is how the Catholic Church is being presented. No wonder so many people don't want to be Catholic. There are some good Catholic comedians. My favorite is Jim Gaffigan. You may not have known that he was Catholic. Jim Gaffigan, I went and saw him, and I was so happy about his Christian jokes because they were not derogatory. That's rare. How many times can we listen to derogatory Christian jokes and not take offense to them. And then his were just hysterical. 
because it's like, <laughs> you know exactly what's going on. And you didn't have to bring in the language. You didn't have to bring in the negativity. This is fantastic. And he goes to mass every week. He goes to daily mass, brings his kids. I follow him on everything on social media that I can just because I want to meet him one day to say, thank you. Thank you for being a good witness. Because unfortunately, again, we have other people that are not practicing their faith or not practicing it well by their actions that profess to be Catholics. And I'm not even getting into politics. Other actors. Two of them are, have late night shows and both of them thought about the seminary at one time. Both Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert at one time almost went to the seminary. Tom Cruise was a seminarian. That because of things that happen to us in life, sometimes we don't interact with the Holy Spirit. We reject the Holy Spirit. And that changes who we are fundamentally. That we don't allow it to be embraced, but we go the other path. But also, not just in the sacraments, not just in the magisterium, in the tradition, and in Scripture, but in prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit gives us the charisms that help to build up a life of faith. That there are signs through the apostolic and missionary life. We can see someone that is holy and know without them even opening their mouths that they're a person of faith. I never met Mother Teresa, but man, you can just see by her witness that she loved God. But she wasn't perfect. She struggled. In fact, when you read her diary, you see that she had what's called spiritual desolation for some 30 years. Spiritual desolation being that I know that God exists, but I don't feel his presence. 30 years of that. And we still talk about her almost 30 years after her death about the things that she's done in, in the world since we've been around. And she's not the only one. Blessed Stanley Rother, Padre Pio, these people of faith. We talk about Fulton Sheen, Pope John Paul II, Pope Pius XXIII, not just, cat, not just priests, but the everyday person we are all called to holiness. We're all called to prayer. One of my favorite saints, and I've talked about her before, and I'll talk about her until I go blue in the face, St. Monica. What was her avenue of faith? She prayed intercessory prayers for her husband and for her son for over 30 years. Ah, that 30 years comes up again a lot. It's kind of interesting. But over 30 years, she prayed for her husband to have a conversion and for her son to have a conversion. Her son, of course, being St. Augustine, had a conversion, became a bishop and doctor of the faith, and she became a saint because of her fervent prayer. Now, in today's society, did she do anything? Was she worth anything to the heavenly banquet? Yeah, 100%. She spent her life in prayer. She spent her life seeking holiness. That is more memorable than any financial gains she did or didn't make. It's the same way for all of us, that whether we are millionaires, billionaires, live paycheck to paycheck, 
ultimately doesn't matter. Now, it makes life easier to manage or not. I understand that. Don't get me wrong. I know that we do have everyday grind that we have to get through. But how do we utilize those gifts that God has given to us? How do we use our gifts? How do we use our skills? How do we use our talents? Do we use them for us alone? Or do we use them to build up the kingdom? And I'm not just talking about the parish. I'm talking about the community. How do we give back to Elk City, to Canute, to Merritt, to Cheyenne, to Sayre, to wherever we're from? Do we volunteer our time? Do we volunteer at our parish? Do we volunteer wherever you're following online, at your own parish? When was the last time that you volunteered to cook for a funeral dinner? That you volunteered to lecture at mass? We notice we have about the same 10 lectors every, all the time, and that most of them are also our cantors. I've noticed. It's always amazing to me that Kathy can go from playing the opening song to reading the first reading to playing the psalm, to Celia then going, or Jeff then going, and it's like, I know that they aren't the only people that do things here, but many times we're afraid, we're fearful of stepping up there. I'm telling you, be not afraid. Those words that were echoed through Pope St. John Paul II's life have been echoed through history. Be not afraid. If you came to Mass last Sunday, our first reader, Sonia's daughter, did such a fantastic job. She's a teenager. She didn't allow her fear to get past her. But if you could have seen her from where I saw her, she was standing up here, and what you saw was this. You didn't see what happened behind here. She was shaking the whole time. But she did not allow her fear to say no. She did not allow her fear to turn her back. That is more inspirational to me to just about anything that has happened this last week. She got past it, not by herself, but by listening to that gentle calling from God. God's coaxing and calling each and every one of us. I talked a couple weeks ago, either it was either in a homily or in one of the classes about this priest, uh, Father Ron Knott from Louisville, who made this challenge to his parish about tithing. Was, it, was that at one of these classes? Probably at a homily. And it, homily. And in that, in that, he said, I will make a promise to you. And he's done this now. He told us about this about 10 years ago now. So about the last 20 years, he said, if you tithe 10% this year and find yourself wanting or find yourself lacking anything that you need at the end of this fiscal year, I will refund your money to the penny. And not once has he had someone come back. That, to me, I'm afraid of making that challenge. I will never make that challenge unless the bishop asks me to do it. <laughs> and even then, I'll be like, huh, you're footing the bill for this because I got nothing. But that is an act of faith. And what it is ultimately is calling people to truly trust in God. We cannot be more generous than the Lord is with us. Anytime that I find myself wanting or in need of something... The Lord has provided, abundantly so. And it's like, thanks, man. I didn't deserve this, but man, you've looked out for me every time. In fact, it was a year ago this next week, where I went to my parents and said, hey, guys, I've got credit card debt because, well, I'm a 30-something-year-old that doesn't know how to deal with credit because I never had to growing up. 
but I've got credit card debt. I want to ask you guys for a loan. Presented it all thinking there's no way in God's green earth my parents are going to say yes. They did. And it was a substantial five, almost six figure, not almost six figure, but almost double digit five figure loan. And they said yes. Pay us back when you're able to. (sighs) My dad's a teacher. My mom works for a church. They don't make any money. They put five of us through college. They don't make any money. But they were still able to offer that because they had saved and prepared. Because they knew they had a dummy son that didn't know how to deal with money. (laughs) With his own money, at least. Parish money, I don't spend anything. Trust me. We're going to have that finance council meeting after this. We're doing okay financially. But we can always do more. We can always do better. And I say all of this not to say, give more money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm calling you to give what the Lord has given to you back. Next week, we're going to talk, as we talk about the fall of man and our need for redemption, we're going to talk about the story of Cain and Abel. Pay attention next week. Because when we read the story of Cain and Abel, Abel gave from what he gave the first fruits, gave the top 10%. Cain gave from what was left over, gave him part of. Do we give what's left over? And I'm not, not, again, not talking about money. I'm talking about what God has blessed us with. If that's talents, if that's tools, if that's time, whatever it may be, do we give what's left over? Or do we give off the top? Do we give the first fruits? Do we give the best of what we have? Or do we give anything? Do we show up? The fact that we're here tonight on a Wednesday night, that to me shows that you guys are at least investing your time, and I appreciate this. We've got 45 people here tonight. We're still only down five. I'm okay with that. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm excited. Because we're still seeking to grow. And I I keep telling the ladies in the office, like, man, I feel like I'm not saying anything. I'm just kind of going round and round and round and telling stories. And am I really teaching anything? Like, Father, keep doing what you're doing. Okay, I'll try. But I feel like I put a lot of work into this and sometimes... I feel like, man, I didn't give anything. But the Lord has given me so much. And that's why I don't have to read many times the different quotes and the different things because I've embraced it in the last 15 years from when I joined seminary in 2007, and it's become part of my life. In fact, it was interesting when we had the Ladder of Ascent class last night. I keep pointing over here because Shannon and Valerie were there last night. But in that Ladder of Ascent class, it's like, oh, this is all second nature to me, but I had to remember it's not second nature to everybody else in the class because I've had to read through this five times in the last 10 years. And then preparing for this class, I'm reading through it, and not just reading through it, everything that I have typed up on these pieces of paper, I didn't just copy and paste, I made sure that I typed in, because when you teach, you learn. And the more you teach, the more you learn. So, though I may not be reading word for word what's on here, when I say here's the paragraphs that that we're looking at, I've got five and a half pages again of notes, some of them... I'm not going to talk about because they're important, but do some research. Go home and read. That my hope is that this whets your appetite so that when you go home with your kids, with your grandkids, with your spouses, with your family, with your friends, that this will open conversations. Hey, you know what we talked about this week? We talked about what we give. Well, as a family, what do we give? And again, not talking about finances. How do we give back to our parish? Do we volunteer? Do we show up to Mass every Sunday? 
When was the last time, as a family, we went on a random day to church to pray? When was the last time, as a family, we went to confession outside of a penance service? When was the last time that we were intentional and set up an appointment to talk with Father, to talk with Amy, to talk with Katie, to talk with Kirk, to talk with whomever, to learn or to figure out where we can continue to learn or to meet with Kathy and figure out, hey, I don't have the best voice, but the Lord said, make a joyful noise. I can honk. How can I make a joyful noise with you? And that was one of the things that for me growing up, I was, I I love Abraham. He is fantastic. When he sings at mass, and and it's not how it used to be, I've been told, but he used to just belt it out. And you guys all know know who I'm talking about. Just started serving a couple weeks ago. He has that fire of love in him. He has the Holy Spirit within him. And the only way it comes out is through his voice. And that's beautiful. I wish we had so much spirit in all of us. But most times, and now I can see it because you aren't wearing masks most of the time, we aren't reading, we aren't singing, we aren't following along, we aren't even trying to mouth it anymore. What's funny is when when we had to wear masks for mass, I saw so many people with books that would go, they wouldn't sing because I wouldn't hear them, but they would at least fake it. The irony is we took the masks away and everybody even stopped faking it. I don't want you to fake it. That's not what I'm saying. But participate. The Lord calls us to make a joyful noise. If you can't sing in tune, that's okay. How many of you ladies went to the women's retreat? Raise your hands. A few of you guys. At the mass at the women's retreat... The choir of angels showed up. We had 95 ladies in this room, and I was the only man, which first of all, I'm going to say intimidation. Because anything that I said, I was the only man they could blame at that point. My fault, always. It was so beautiful. And I cannot tell you how many ladies came to me afterwards and said, oh my gosh, it was so beautiful. I said, I know. Let's see it this weekend. And nothing that next weekend. Because we're afraid when we're around people that we feel judged by. And unfortunately, who do most women feel judged by the most? There's No, not other women. Sometimes. Their spouses. Their children. Their parents. But it was interesting for that one time. Normally, I would agree with you, Celia, that would be the other women. But that disproved it that night for me. That intellectually, that's our first answer. But that showed that everybody put set their inhibitions by the wayside. But when we brought in other, other sounds, other voices, other people, we went back to the old manner of speaking. We had seen and heard the power of the Holy Spirit. We'd allowed him to affect our lives. We just got to where we wanted to change. Like, ah, just kidding, false start. And then we took a step back. And so what do we have to do now? We have to get back up, dust ourselves off, and try again, and keep practicing, and keep practicing, and keep practicing. Now, when we had the men's retreat, we about, had about 55 guys in here, and it was just as quiet as normal because guys just don't like to sing. 
it was pretty good. It was pretty good. But I really noticed it with the women. And it was such a stark difference because when you have men's and women's voices together, you hear a little bit of a difference. When it's just women, it is like angelic singing. It's different. It's like when I went to a convent for the first time for mass. It's a seminary. We went to uh, Clyde Convent, which is down the street from um, Conception Seminary, one of the most beautiful convents I've ever seen. You go in there, and it's just seminarians trying to get ready, celebrating Mass in the morning on a Saturday for us to go to our ministry afterwards, and 40 to 60 women who have dedicated their lives to God, who don't care how they sound, and it's just beautiful. How amazing would our church be if the 45 of us that are in here today didn't care what other people thought about us and lived our life based on the gospel? didn't worry about what others thought, didn't worry about how we could be persecuted, didn't worry about how others looked at us negatively because you guys are now Bible thumpers or you guys are now Jesus freaks, depending on which decade or generation you come from. Mine was, you don't want to be a Jesus freak because that was DC Talk's big song. I liked it. You don't want to be a Bible thumper because that's a negative thing. Well, you shouldn't thump a Bible, I agree, but how do we embrace this? How do we become a Bible embracer? Maybe that's a better way to look at it instead of a Bible thumper. How do we become a catechism liver? How do we become a Christ follower, ultimately? And it means putting ourselves in right relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Embracing the gifts, embracing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the signs of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and throughout time, the Holy Spirit has shown himself to us in so many ways. In water, and anointing, and fire, cloud and lightnings, in the seal, in the hand, in the finger, in the dove. These are all representations of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Through water, where does the Holy Spirit come in? Baptism. Comes in through baptism. That, did you notice at the flood and at Jesus' baptism, the same symbol of the Holy Spirit was present? The dove. And the dove that offered Noah on the ark, the, hey, it's now fine to go out and the flood's over. The dove descends on Jesus and the heavens open and the voice of God the Father says, behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We have those representations throughout history of the Holy Spirit. When we talked a few weeks ago about Genesis 15 and the covenant between God and Abraham, we have the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire representing the Holy Spirit, representing God. The burning bush, the fire representing God present. That in anointings, when we had the anointing of the sick, through the oil, through the prayers of anointing, through the laying on of hands of the anointing, through the imposition of hands at the prayer of the epiclesis, at confirmation being sealed with chrism, be confirmed, that's not the word, be sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit at confirmation. The hand of God, the finger of God, the dove descending, that ultimately from the beginning of time, from the fullness of time, that joint mission of the Father's word and of the Spirit, of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, was united. It remains hidden in our vision, 
but we see it visible in the works. Three weeks ago at Sunday's Mass, we had the book of James. Faith without works is dead. That you will know they are Christians by what? By their love. How do we live out what God offers to us? When was the last time that we went to a restaurant? And this was something that for me was hard growing up, but I've gotten to more bold because, well, I've got this, and whether I pray or not, people see, still see this. But when was the last time you went out to a restaurant as your family and said, before we eat, let's pray? And actually, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Bless us, our Lord, and these are gifts which we are about to receive. When was the last time we did that? Now, for me growing up, the first time I can remember doing that by myself, I was terrified. I thought everyone's eyes were on me. I prayed that prayer as John Simon would pray the rosary. Amen. I made it through. We're good. Because I was afraid to show my faith that I doubted that God would watch over me. I, didn't, I doubted my fellow human. But may we pray with confidence, pray boldly in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts. And what's interesting is when you do that, normally I'd say nine out of ten times, and a waiter will come up, they will wait for you to finish praying. There's always that one waiter that doesn't. Oh, can I get you something? We're praying over here. We'll get you in a second. You finish your prayer and move on. What does that teach our children? It teaches us to be not afraid. It teaches us that it's more than just the words that they're hearing in class. As I've said from the beginning, the reason I wanted this class at the same time as those classes, for those of you that have children, is so that your children see you learning about the faith and it's not just dropping them off. Because I can stand up here and preach 15, 20, 30 minutes on Sunday, sometimes 30. But you guys have a bigger impact on their daily life than I will ever have. Because whether we realize it or not, how we as mom and dad, as grandmother, as grandfather, as aunt and uncle, as cousin, as neighbor, how we live our faith shows them how to profess it. And if we do so boldly, so will they. If we don't and we are afraid, so will they be. We've got about five minutes, because that's about the time I normally end up wrapping up. What questions do we have? About the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, God. Next week, as I said, we're going to get into more of the fall of man, sin, promise of redemption. Come on, Chris, you always got something for me. <laughs> Good, see? I told you. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes, so the paraclete is one of the title. The question was, is the paraclete the same thing as the Holy Spirit? The paraclete is a title for the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we come to um, adoration for Holy Hour, at the end of adoration, we do something called the divine praises. And in that, we, we, we say the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. So it's just one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. Good question. Oh, 
otro preguntas, por favor. See, you're always good for at least one. Nothing? Man. Shannon? Do it. Yes. So we always hear that you get to heaven. The only way that we know to heaven is through the cross of Christ, basically. So if you are a non-believer, are you just up creek without a paddle, basically? No. And actually, in fact, it, it, it mentions this specifically in the catechism. I'll try and bring that uh, reference next week, because we'll talk about that next week a little bit too. Um, we, the only way that we know of is through the cross of Christ. One of the things that we have to be reminded of, God is not limited by humanity, God is not limited by what we know, by what we think, by what we believe. God can, if he wills it, save everyone, condemn everyone. We, however, believe that God is love. God's will is that we all be saved. If we actively choose salvation, even if we have never come to know the gospel, we believe that there is that ability. Even if you've never been baptized, even if you've never come to hear of the name of Jesus Christ. So normally this comes up when we talk about aliens, when we talk about um, the indigenous um, that have never come, when we talk about um, uh, children that were born uh, or, or were um, killed in birth, um, abortion um, through uh, miscarriage. Well, what happens to them? They've never been baptized. If you can't be baptized, you can't be buried in a Catholic cemetery, right? Not technically right. When we talk about those who did not have the opportunity to know God, we have to also talk about those who did not have the opportunity to know sin. And we'll talk about this when we get to the sacrament of reconciliation more intently, but the age of reason, does anybody know what age the age of reason is? Seven. And technically, typically, by the age of seven, we can knowingly distinguish right from wrong. So to commit a mortal sin, and we'll get into this again when we get to reconciliation, there have to be three things present to be completely culpable for the mortal sin that has been committed. You have to know that it is wrong. You have to have the freedom to commit that sin, and it has to be of grave matter. Now the problem is, what most people think grave matter is and what grave matter actually is are two different things. Grave matter is not just murder, it's not just adultery. The Ten Commandments are defined as grave matter. Any sin against the Ten Commandment is a consequential grave matter. You miss mass, you take the name of the Lord in vain, you cuss, you, sin, you lie, you cheat, you steal, you, you, you uh, masturbate, you have sex outside of marriage, you kill someone, you gossip. Those are technically all grave matter. They are not all mortal sins of complete culpability. And that's where we many times get distracted when we talk about venial sin, mortal sin. You have to know that it's wrong. Most people don't realize what sin is. When you become aware of it, we can no longer use that as an excuse. But then there are other things that limit our freedom. For instance, the thing that kind of, and I'll bring this up again when we get to reconciliation, if someone comes to you and puts a gun to your head and says, if you don't murder this person, I'm going to kill you, and you pull the trigger, 
Have, are you completely culpable for your sin? No, because you've been coerced. Your freedom has been lessened because of the situation. So when we talk about other sacraments, sacrament of reconciliation, sacrament of marriage, sacrament of um, marriage, those three specifically, coercion is to be avoided. Shotgun weddings do not exist in the Catholic Church. Why? Because it limits someone's ability to say, I do freely. That's why if someone is pregnant and they begin marriage prep, we have to, per canon law, wait six months until after the child is born to validly marry them unless there's a dispensation given by the bishop. Why? Because you cannot be coerced into marriage. Oh, but it's for the good of the child. Is it, though? Sometimes it's not. So we have to look at all of those different things. That's, that's, that's a great question. I realize I kind of went off on tangent with it, but... Well, thank you guys. We're going to end with prayer. Um, and next week we'll talk about sin um, and the need for redemption. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day, for the sacrifice of your Son for our sins, and for you sending the Holy Spirit to nurture us, nourish us, and be our advocate and guide. As we go from here, may we take with us the gift of faith, the gift of love, to continue to be nurtured and nourished in our lives, that we may do more of the things in our lives for you, we may embrace more your love, and we may live it more fully. We ask all these things in your Son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys.